This is episode 204 of That Shakespeare Life. Get access to our digital streaming app when you sign up to be a patron of our show. That's right. Patreon lets us connect our benefits for behind-the-scenes listeners to our digital streaming app. So for just $5 a month, you can get video versions of our show, exclusive Shakespeare history documentaries, virtual tours, and so much more. Sign up today to connect with other Shakespeareans just like you at patreon.com slash Life. Hi, I'm Natalie Mears, Associate Professor, Stroke Reader of Tudor and Early Stuart History at the University of Durham and author of Queenship and Public Discourse in the Elizabethan Realms. Another great method for studying the life of William Shakespeare includes listening to this. It's That Shakespeare Life with my friend Cassidy Cash. One of the most popular books in all of 16th century England, and I mean this quite literally, one of the most popular books that anybody sold or read in the 16th century in English was a tiny little herbal that had no author at all. It was a a small Octava book that went through 20 editions in about 40 years. It was one of the biggest bestsellers in the book trade. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Throughout Shakespeare's lifetime, there were dozens of books printed on plants called herbals. These books contained drawings of various grasses, flowers, herbs, and trees that grew in England. The drawings we have surviving today total more than a thousand woodcuts from Shakespeare's lifetime, literally illustrating for us that the plant industry in England was big business for the same publishing houses producing plays. Our guest this week, Sarah Neville, joins us to explore this part of the publishing industry and explain where herbals came from who wrote them, and most of all, what kind of person wanted to buy them during Shakespeare's lifetime. Sarah Neville is an assistant professor of English at The Ohio State University with a courtesy appointment in theater, film, and media arts. She is an assistant editor of The New Oxford Shakespeare from 2016 to 2017, for which she edited five plays in both old and modern spelling editions, as well as an associate coordinating editor of the Digital Renaissance Editions. A great believer in experiential learning, Neville is also the founder and creator of Lord Denny's Players, an academic theater company that enables audiences to see how to technologies of textual transmission have shaped the reception of Shakespeare's plays. Her latest book, Early Modern Herbals and the Book Trade, English Stationers and the Commodification of English Botany out of Cambridge in 2022, demonstrates the ways that printers and booksellers of herbals enabled the construction of scientific and medical authority in early modern England. Find out more about Sarah in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Sarah. Welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. We know that poets are the industry or profession, I guess, that wrote plays, but who exactly was it that was writing herbals as a profession? Well, 
So this is a really interesting question because herbals, as the term is defined, are things, are texts that describe plants and their uses. And the genre has been around for a very, very long time. So longer than the English language and longer even than the codex or or book form. So one of the things that uh, herbals have been are are just texts that condense information about plants into a single place that have been found in many ancient cultures. And plant knowledge, of course, is also circulated as transmitted knowledge in indigenous cultures. And one of the things I think that, that happens now is that we think about ourselves as a, somewhat of a remove from the natural world. But for most of human history, including in Shakespeare's London, plants were ubiquitous resources that were uh, widely available to most folks. And most folks uh, knew rather a lot about them. Um, And some folks knew more, of course, but the baseline knowledge about plants, what plants were what, how to tell one from another, what was edible, what was useful, was much higher than we might assume. And what this history kind of means is that when what I want to do is sort of turn your question around a little bit and ask, when did plant knowledge move from something that was held in common by a lot of people into something that somebody could author or somebody could could authorize in the same way that a poet could, could write a poem? And the answer to that question is one of the things that my book seeks to explain by showing that the advent of printing in Europe really helped to move plant knowledge from the common, something that lots of people knew about and were ready to talk about, into a more specialized field that someone could move into as an expert writing in this in this knowledge domain. So in other words, the way that printed books were made and sold helped to create this figure of the herbalist who wrote books about plants. So in other words, the things that were herbals or books about plants came before we had this idea of the author who who wrote them. And one of the reasons that we know this is that one of the most popular books in all of 16th century England, and I mean this quite literally, one of the most popular books that anybody sold or read in the 16th century in English, was a tiny little herbal that had no author at all. It was a a small Octova book that went through 20 editions in about 40 years. It was one of the biggest bestsellers in the book trade. And so many publishers sold the book and many more readers read it. And then they would annotate these little copies of the book with their own findings and plant recipes and nomenclature. But that book had no author at all. And then later, neither did the first illustrated English herbal, which was translated from an anonymous French source. And it was the success of these two books in print in the first half of the 16th century that later led to folks wanting to write English herbals. So there was a market that had been demonstrated and a space for would-be herbalists to move into that market. And once that market had been established, publishers were looking for more books in that genre. I wonder if that means that writing herbals and printing them, you know, we think about if you want to be an expert today, you write a book on your topic and it's all about, oh, they are, this person is the author of this book. And it sounds like with herbals, it was really a lot more about the monetization of the book itself. And it was about what can I print that will make money? And it was not so much tied to 
I want to become an author and be well-known myself. Is that fair? That is exactly correct. Yes. So one of the things that my research has shown is that the impetus, or in the Aristotelian terms, the prime mover of herbal making in early modern London comes not from the authors or the names at the top of the title page, but from publishers, those figures and and the booksellers, those figures whose names appear on the bottom of a title page, quite frequently, those figures at the bottom, the publishers or the stationers as they were known in Renaissance London, created herbals. They wanted to have a book that they could sell that was a herbal, and they set up the terms by which a herbal could be produced by acquiring wood blocks that could make woodcut images renting those woodblocks from a European, often a continental book publisher. And then by finding someone who could produce a text to serve those images. So the publisher is the prime mover of many of these Renaissance herbals, not the figure that we now associate with them as the author figure. Were herbals written to catalog, and we will establish here, I think, that here in the U.S., there's a well-established debate about whether it's herbal or herbal. So we we love you, whichever way you, you say this. But were herbals written to catalog the plants that were currently growing in England, or were they use guides for people that were going to be growing these at home or in some commercial capacity? The short answer is both. So the way that herbals function or the the purpose of the books was on the one hand to describe known plants. And by describe, I mean talking about how to identify them, their morphology, their shapes. These are what their leaves look like. This is when they bloom. But the flip side to that is also how could these plants be useful to humans in some kind of instrumental way. So often medicinal, but also household uses to produce dye and so on. And so herbals would be serving both of these functions, both as a classification maneuver to describe all of these things, what I might call an Aristotelian approach. Here is a, all of the trees in the world that exist. But then also, here are the ones that are useful. And so in herbals, you can see them organized in two different fashions, sometimes organized according to the ways in which they might be useful. Here's all the herbs together that are useful in the kitchen. Here's all the plants that can be organized for dyeing, that kind of thing. But then there's also this, as the number of known plants increases, over the 16th and through the 17th century. And when I say increases, it moves from about there being about 500 known plants to 6,000 known plants over a relatively short period of time. As that happens, the herbal books tend to become more about classification, sorting all of these items into their families and groupings. We don't quite have that modern idea of sort of Linnaean groupings of different kinds of of species and genus yet. But 
there's a sense that you need to have a broader mechanism for organizing this information. And the details that are related to usage for plants can get split off to produce their own kind of genre of household manual or books of secrets. Uh, So the genre kind of splits in half somewhat later in the 16th century, definitely by the 17th century. So the answer is both. But what starts to happen is the thing that continues to be a herbal tends to have that breadth of uh, comprehensive, let's put all of the plants in a single book and tell you all of the things we could know about them. Were herbals sold in the same bookshops as poems and plays or would book publishers sort of specialize in herbals and be like, this is all we sell? Yes. So bookshops in the period, much like bookshops now, would feature all kinds and uh, and genres of books or a large number of varieties of books. So the name that we see on the title pages of books that list the bookseller and the bookshop, that's listing not the retail place to find that book, but the wholesale place. That's the publisher's information, the publisher who manufactured that book. So if you were a bookseller and you wanted to buy 12 copies of that book to put in your bookshop, you now know where to find it. But early modern publishers would often buy and trade books amongst themselves that they had published so that they could create a large variety and diverse selection of books and their customers. So some booksellers might specialize in books to appeal to a particular clientele if they're near, say, the inns of court where the lawyers are. They might stock books that are going to necessarily appeal to that clientele, but they often are offering books on a variety of subjects and a variety of genres. I know that many herbals contain drawings, as you mentioned, of the plants that are described. Were the booksellers or the authors of these herbals also artists, or would these have been produced in conjunction with an illustrator? I think you may have touched on this earlier with your uh, mentioning of the renting of wood blocks, but how exactly did the illustrations get added into this herbal So often the bookseller or the book producer, so the publisher, would have access to a group of woodcuts that they wanted to use. Cutting woodcuts for the use of a specific or particular book would have added an astronomical expense to the cost of a book. And so usually a bookseller would know before they would commission a book whether they had access to those to those woodcuts and so they would regularly make that determination early on so sometimes in the cases of some herbals a book that is reprinted an illustrated book that gets reprinted the new publisher might not have access to the woodcuts that had been used in a previous edition. And so they are faced with a choice. Do they want to spend a lot of money to have a bunch of woodblocks recut, woodblocks that might not be useful for another book, because often herbal illustrations are quite specific um, and they're quite numerous? Or do they just want to forego putting illustrations in that book at all? So there are reprints of 
the first illustrated herbal in England known as the Great Herbal that did not contain illustrations in the third or fourth edition because the publisher just decided there's no there's no justification for this particular cost. In other cases, sometimes an author themselves is able to arrange for funding to have some woodblocks cut. This was less common in England, but it was more common on the continent. Uh, Leonard Fuchs, who in the 16th century produced one of the most famous books of the German Renaissance. It was this herbal that went through 30 editions in Fuchs's lifetime. He was a a professor of natural history at the University of of Tübingen, I think. And as part of his salary, he had money to help supplement the cost of books that he might produce in the same way that a modern professor would have a subvention um, to produce their books. Um, And he was able to partner with a publisher who helped to commission woodblock cuttings drawn from life. Um, And he supervised all of that in, in images of the artists, so the person who drew the images of plants, the person who transferred those drawings onto the woodblocks, and then the person who cut the woodblocks, they are all featured with author portraits in Fuchs's editions of his herbal, which has all of these beautiful editions of woodcuts in it. One of the things that happened very soon after that is that those illustrations were copied by someone who wanted to use illustrations of herbals, uh, illustrations of plants to put in his own herbal. And this created uh, a little bit of a, of a stir because those commodities, those new woodblocks themselves could be rented and reused and enable the production of, of other texts to be built. So the illustrations were kind of, the woodblock illustrations proved a kind of limiting factor in some ways on what authors could do. And so some herbals were simply produced without any illustrations at all. It was much easier to produce them without illustrations. We will throw in here that this was pre- copyright law or plagiarism and things like that, where the artists didn't, you know, automatically own things that they created, which is probably one reason it was so easy for them to just take those wood blocks and and create a whole nother book with them for if you're shocked by this when you're hearing us say that why why were they able to just run off with the artwork? There's there's a whole industry reason behind that. But Sarah, I have a question for you about one of my favorite herbals that comes up here on our show pretty frequently. And it's the one by John Gerard from 1597. And I have always thought of him as this naturalist going from place to place, compiling these illustrations and facts on plants and, and then publishing this book. And you've thrown this whole new perspective at me that maybe that wasn't accurate about how his herbal was was produced. Would that process of someone who's just really into plants and studying them, going from finding them and cataloging them to then putting them in a book, or was it all just a commercial venture for these booksellers? I think it's both. So I think Gerard was a naturalist who did spend an awful lot of time looking at plants. Um, His biographer says that he was likely a surgeon 
on a ship that traveled, I think, in, in a bunch of Nordic countries early in his career. And then he came back to London and um, sort of made his way up the various levels of the Barber Surgeons Company of London. He was eventually master of the Barber Surgeons Company of London. And he was friends with or acquaintance with Walter Raleigh, who was giving him samples of some of his some of his plant specimens as he would return home from his voyages. Um, and Gerard was also um, associated heavily with the, the court of Elizabeth I because he was the chief gardener of Lord Burley. And so one of the, the things that this meant is that as particular plants were brought back from the so-called New World explorations, they were often given to Gerard or Gerard had access to them and could sort of support and nurture them through both Burley's gardens, but also Gerard's own gardens in Holborn um, in, in, a, in a region of London. And Gerard was a figure who was sort of on the rise. He was known as being an expert gardener of some renown in London, arguably the most famous gardener in London, which meant that when publisher John Norton wanted a herbal, an English herbal, recognizing that there hadn't been an English herbal authored by an Englishman in print in London for 25 years, the person that he turned to to offer this opportunity to commission a herbal was Gerard. So Norton's, so the thing that we now know of as Gerard's herbal, which is this wonderful, charming, massive tome of like 1400 pages and 2000 woodcuts that came out in 1597, is this extravagantly expensive publishing enterprise. It is a, almost in the same way as like a massive sort of film undertaking, you know, for a bookseller like Norton. Norton seems to have wanted to commission that herbal a couple years earlier, and he rented wood blocks from the continent from an earlier herbal, from a German herbal that that were available. And once those were available, he gave them to Gerard. Now, there seems to be the case that Gerard had been taking notes towards some kind of herbal earlier than that. And so what he did was assemble a lot of his knowledge, his herbal knowledge from a lifetime of gardening and working on plants. And he marshaled them to serve the woodblocks that had been provided to him by Norton. And so the text as we have it is this combination of deep experiential knowledge that Gerard provides, as well as an opportunity to display that knowledge that is occasioned by a extremely knowledgeable publisher, John Norton, who's arguably the most successful publisher of his age. He, he makes a ton of money. And Gerard's Herbal is the second largest book that he ever, he ever produces. It's a really heavy undertaking. I know in Shakespeare's Pericles, he mentions a quote, herb woman saying, uh, why your herb woman, she that sets seeds and roots of shame and iniquity. This could, of course, just be 
metaphorical and he could just be speaking artistically here. But was there a person known as an herb woman for someone that grows particular herbs? I I think about the overlap between medicine and magic in Shakespeare's lifetime, particularly where mixing up herbal remedies is concerned. So what kind of person was it that was usually, I mean, what's the difference, I guess, between an herb woman and this expert gardener of Gerard? Was there different classes of people who deal with plants? For sure there was. And one of the reasons that herbals, especially English herbals, became such a lucrative genre for publishers to create these large textbooks is because early modern physicians or doctors needed to rely on the plant local plant knowledge in order to create medicines. And so frequently they would provide medical advice they would need they would derive their medical remedies from things like Galen's accounts of what plants were necessary to cure agues and fevers and palsies and things like that but Galen is a very is uh, is a classical physician right he's a roman physician galen's knowledge of plants is very regional in a mediterranean landscape and so plant gatherers were often trying to adapt mediterranean plants within an english landscape and that knowledge had not been solidified or professionalized it wasn't always clear when galen was talking about a particular plant if that plant could grow in england or if there was an english equivalent that could work just as well. And so physicians were regularly relying on apothecaries um, and the apothecaries in England, in Shakespeare's London, were a, derived from the grocer's company. It was sort of like a sideline of what the grocers were doing. The apothecaries would not get their own company or separate off until 1618. The grocers themselves would rely on local gatherers to bring them particular products. So one of the things that physicians were starting to realize in the 16th century and you can see hints of it in the social struggles that are mentioned in Shakespeare's plays is that medical authorities are recognizing that their skills at healing, the ability to get the right medicine to heal a person is dependent on the accuracy of plant knowledge all the way down the line down to that herb woman right so that herb woman has an awful lot of authority and that concerns medical practitioners at higher levels of status and so one of the ways that they could fix this problem was by writing books that dictated what plants had particular equivalencies And so I think one of the things that we see when we see references to things like a herb woman or the wise woman I think that's mentioned in 12th night is we see this awareness that medical care in the 16th century didn't necessarily reside with these established medical authorities like doctors 
there's all of these other ways to to gain access to medicine. And in one of the chapters in my in my book, I talk a little bit about how the stage operates to show some of these debates about authorities in ways that are a little bit subtle, um, but they're there if you know to look for them. I know we would love to learn more about this topic and to explore herbals and how they were created. What are some of your favorite books or resources, in addition to your own, that you can recommend we use to learn more? So there are a couple of books that I think are really fantastic for learning more about the ways that books themselves were produced uh, in the period, particularly herbals. There's a book uh, that came out in 1912 uh, by Agnes Arbor called Herbals, Their Origin and Evolution. And this was the standard book on the history of herbals for over a century. And it's a really marvelous, easy to read, lucid book that starts with these early manuscript herbals and works through the increasingly large and larger and larger uh, herbal books in England to provide a history and some samples. There's a lot of great pictures and a lot of large quotations from the text in question if you want to see the kinds of ways that early modern readers thought about plants in writing and, and in print. The other book that I think is really great for getting a sense of the way books convey meaning is by Elizabeth Eisenstein. It's called The Printing Revolution in Early Modern Europe. And it offers a really comprehensible introduction to how printed books impacted intellectual, religious, and social history. So it helps to explain how printing itself changed the way that people tended to think about what knowledge could be or how it could be used or deployed to enable certain types of pretensions or authority over the world. Those are excellent suggestions. We will have links to Sarah's work as well as both of these books, including the one by Agnes Arbor that is available on Project Gutenberg. So you can see that one definitely online there. So make sure you go by the show notes to see those. Now, Sarah, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. I would have to say probably Edmund Spencer's allegorical poem dedicated to Elizabeth I, the Fairy Queen, which I read every couple of years because I teach a course on it at Ohio State University. And every time I read it, I find myself newly transfixed by the characters and by um, its narrative structure and it's the weirdness of its allegory. And every time I read it, I get a new favorite night. I think, oh, I really love Britomart. And then I read it again and I'm like, no, Guyon is just such a weirdo <laughs> and, or something. Every time I read it again, I, I change my mind about who's my favorite. It's a good choice for sure. It's one that never gets old. No. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, in addition to being a book historian, I'm also a theater director, and I am prepping to direct a production of the first quarto text of Hamlet for the Actors Theater of Columbus here, which opens Memorial Day weekend uh, in a local park. So I'm really chuffed to bring this 
earlier and younger and much faster version of Shakespeare's tragedy to Columbus audiences this summer. That sounds amazing. And I will say I am surprised. Aren't you based in Ohio? Yes. Okay. So see, this is just when you study Elizabethan England so much, you pick up the British phrases because I think you're the first American I've heard use the word chuffed uh, correctly and know what it what it means without That's being true. in England. <laughs> I am Canadian though, which does mean that my so you have an advantage. Really weird. Yeah. Yes. So you have you have that advantage. Well, Sarah Neville, thank you so much for being here today and taking us through the history of herbals. This has been a really insightful and fun conversation. Thank you for being here. I'm happy to talk about herbals any day of the week. Don't forget to check out the show notes today where you can learn more about our guest and see recommended resources for how you can explore this topic further. Find all these things at CassidyCash.com slash episode 204. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP204. Before you go, remember that bonus history content is available exclusively for our patrons. Just like William Shakespeare, our show is powered by listeners just like you who sign up to support our work here. In the patrons area, we include special bonuses to say thank you for supporting our show. For just $5 a month, you get access to our digital streaming app here at That Shakespeare Life. And if you choose to support us at a higher level, there are extra bonuses for all four levels of patronage available inside our Patreon page. Each level is packed with benefits like our printable resources, our DIY history club, or access our virtual tours so you can travel with us to places like Stratford-upon-Avon and look at Kenilworth Castle, all from the comfort of your own home. Choose the level that's right for you and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Thank you for your support. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.